Okay, if you would turn to Mark chapter 14, which is where we've uh, got to in our journey. Okay, let's just uh, bow our hearts as we come to God's Word together, shall we? Father, I just thank you for this record we have in Mark's Gospel. Lord, these things that Mark was so excited about himself and just wanted to, to get down on paper, to share with other people, to tell them of the Christ that he'd followed, that he'd served that he'd come to know as a, a friend and as a saviour. And Lord, as we study this account this morning, help us to see, Lord, the things that Mark saw. Lord, not to see the deception and the deceit of man, not to see the cruelty and, Lord, the, the way that this world can just inflict so much pain, but to see beyond all of those things, to see a saviour who loved this world so much that he came and gave his, his life for us. And Lord, help us to have a renewed understanding of just how wonderful our Savior is this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so back into Passion Week, which is where we've been studying. Uh, just going through uh, almost day by day as Mark takes us through this account. Uh, and we've got to this section now. Mark 13, you remember, was uh, looking at the um, uh, Jesus foretelling the destruction of the temple, the um, account of all that is going to happen at the end of this age um, on the Mount of Olives as Jesus gives this Olivet Discourse, as typically it's referred to. Um, but then we jump forward to the Wednesday, um, and uh, in the evening of this day was when uh, Jesus went out and uh, had this meal with uh, his friends and Mary poured this oil on his feet and that's what we were looking at last time. This incredible extravagant uh, gift, this act of worship, uh, which teaches us really so much about what worship is. Um, that leads us on then to, to the rest of this chapter. Now we'll see how far we get in this, but we've got as far as verse 10, so we're going to pick it up from here. And we read, And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priests to betray him unto them. Now again, the thing that has tipped it for Judas was seeing this extravagant waste. We said it could have been up to about £27,000 worth of perfume. It was extremely expensive in, in our money. You know, at that time, that, that was what was poured upon Jesus. And Judas, of course, not bothered about the money side of it for uh, giving to the poor, as of course it had been made out. He just wanted that money. He thought of all the things he could do with it, how much maybe he could siphon off without the disciples even knowing. Um, and so he's, he's just, just so incensed now. And he's like, that's it, I'm going, I'm going now. So he goes to the chief priest, and they are so excited that they've now given this opportunity. But if you, if you remember, this is what we looked at previously, verse 11 says, And when they heard, they were glad and promised to give him money and sought how he might conveniently betray him. Now, they didn't want to do it during the feast time. Okay, because we're getting into this period now, we're going to start on the 14th of the month with a feast of, per, a feast of Passover, the 15th of the month is then the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then on the Sunday following the next Saturday, whenever that would fall, it would be the Feast of First Fruits in the Jewish calendar. We'll look at those in just a moment. And of course they didn't want to take Jesus during this festival period, because so many had come to Jerusalem to celebrate this 
festival time. And of course, many of those had come down from Galilee and the regions where Jesus, for much of his ministry, had been healing the sick and casting out demons. And so there were many that had followed Jesus and were interested and curious. And so to arrest Jesus could have been a political disaster at this point. So they wanted to avoid it. So they wanted to find a convenient time. They were hoping that the festival would just pass. And then after that, they would be able to arrest Jesus. And they have now got their man on the inside that Judas is ready to help them out. But of course, it doesn't work out the way they wanted it to. Verse 12, we read, And the first day of unleavened bread. Okay, now, we've talked about this before, and it's very easy to get confused. We actually have seven days where they eat unleavened bread, and it begins on the 14th, on the Feast of Passover. But as we said previously, the Feast of Passover itself, as well as being a special feast, was also known as the Day of Preparation, because they were allowed to do certain things on that day. They weren't allowed to work or to do anything for which they would receive payment. But they were allowed to prepare food and to do other things. But when they get to the 15th, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it was one of the high Sabbaths, and they weren't allowed to do any work at all, and no labor was permitted. And so typically, although the the feast started on the 14th, really the 15th was considered the first day of the festival for many, because that was the day that everything stopped, and they sat down with their families, and they celebrated, and they remembered, of course, all that God had done for them, particularly thinking back to the time when God had delivered them out of Egypt. Now, we just read again, and the first of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover, okay, that's the day the Passover was killed. His disciples said unto him, where will thou uh, that we go and prepare that thou mayest eat the Passover? Now, it's really important this verse because it makes it very clear that Jesus intended and did indeed celebrate the Passover with his disciples. Now, the reason I say that is because if you look at some commentaries, some people will tell you that Jesus celebrated a different meal and that he didn't celebrate the Passover because they try and reconcile the dates, but they don't go back to the Old Testament and look at the details. When we look at the details, there is no contradiction, there's no problem. Jesus did indeed celebrate the Passover. And I'll show you in a moment how all this works together. Look. We're told very clearly in Exodus chapter 12, verse 15, seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. It's very, very clear. Even the first day you shall put away uh, any leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. Okay, just to comment on leaven, of course. Leaven is that which typically would puff up. Uh, and it's seen as being idiomatic of pride, uh, that which puffs up and, and so on. And so it's also seen as being a type of sin in this context. So that's why it's removed from the houses. Verse 16 carries on. And in the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and in the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation to you. No man of work shall be done in them, save, okay, apart from that which every man must eat. That only may be done of you. Okay? So, very clearly we're told that on the 14th, which is the first day of this seven-day period, there was no work to be done except that which is necessary for eating. So, getting the food prepared. So, this is why this day becomes known as the day of preparation. Of 17a, the first part of that verse says, And you shall observe, now you'll notice, it says there, the feast of unleavened bread. Now, that can be very confusing. 
because the Feast of Unleavened Bread is on the 15th. Now, this is one of these issues that, sadly, we'll look in a moment, uh, a lot of modern versions don't help us at all. In fact, they add so much confusion. Um, you'll notice that the words the Feast of are in italics, and you'll see that in the King James. Those words were added by the translators. Now, we can argue in one sense that they're not wrong because it still was a feast and the whole period, the whole festival was a festival where they didn't eat unleavened bread. But when it adds the words, the feast of, it implies the 15th. Okay? If we just read that, and you shall observe unleavened bread, that's actually what the text says and that's what it means. This is one of those little areas where uh, we're sometimes not helped by what translators have done for us. Okay? Uh, the verse carries on. It says, For in this self same day, so now we know it's the 14th and not the 15th, have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt? Therefore you should observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at even you shall eat unleavened bread, because that's when the next day begins in their calendar, as it were, the day begins in the evening, until the one and twenty, or the twenty-first day of the month that evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses. For whosoever eats that which is leaven, even that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he be a stranger or born in the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your habitations. You shall eat unleavened bread. So that's the instruction that's given to them way back in Exodus regarding this period of time. So these 14 days on the 14th, sorry, these seven days. On the 14th is the Feast of Passover, the 15th is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The whole period, this period of seven days, is a period where they would eat unleavened bread. The whole period is referred to as Passover, because that was, in a sense, the principal feast. So sometimes you'll find the whole festival referred to as the Passover. Sometimes the whole festival is referred to as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this is why we looked the other week at the different terms. Certainly that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all use the same terms. And they really count from the 15th when they're talking about the feast. Okay. Now, as we said, we've got so many easy-to-read translations today. We've got over 200 modern versions. Now, they don't help because they don't put in italics things that have been added. Why? Well, because so much of the text has been added. It's been inserted for readability, which is great if they get it right. But if they get it wrong, it can lead you astray. So, just a few examples. NIV, celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. Okay, maybe no different than the King James, but it doesn't give you the clarity. New Living Translation, celebrate this festival of unleavened bread again. The ESV says, um, and you should observe the feast of unleavened bread. Well, now that becomes a real problem, because that's actually incorrect. You can argue the others are confusing, but that's wrong. The Berean Study Bible, just this is just a list of many, many of these. It says, um, so you are to observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this day I brought your divisions out of the land of Egypt. Well, that's not true. Because the, the, the children of Israel were brought out on the feast of Passover. It was on the night that the angel passed over the land that they, they celebrated. They killed the, the lamb, put the blood on the lintels and doorposts. And that night they were led out. But this version, and these ones here, uh, the uh, New American Standard Bible also says, you should observe, uh, you should also observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for uh, on that very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. But that's not true. Do you see how 
they've tried to help you by making it more readable, and actually they've inserted errors. These are contradictions. If somebody comes and challenges you, and you're using one of those versions, and they say, well, the Bible says that the children of Israel left on the, 15th, on the 14th day, and yet here it says they left on the 15th, why would you answer that? You can't, because it is a contradiction. So I point this out because we need to be aware of this. Now, as I've said many times before, you can use whatever Bible you want to use. That's fine. I would encourage you strongly always, if you're going to study, to go back to the King James because that is the best English translation we have. Forget the fact that some of the words may be archaic. Bring your understanding up to the level of those things rather than trying to dumb it down to make it easier to read because by making it easier to read, all we've done has introduced so many errors into the text of Scripture. And this is just one thing. And you may say, oh, it's not that important. And this issue, maybe you're right. It's not that important. It doesn't make a big difference. And for the odd few critics that may even discover this and point it out, does it really matter? Maybe not. But I can guarantee there's a whole bunch more that are important. And if you don't know which which bits are and which bits aren't aren't supposed to be in the text, and you're reading these things, you will end up reading things that have been inserted which are blatantly wrong and can actually undo the very foundation of the gospel. And we'll look at some of those things a little bit later in our study of Mark because we've got to consider this issue of the last 16 verses of Mark's gospel, which almost all modern versions leave out and tell you that they were a later edition. Okay, and we'll look at that and we'll comment on that when we get there. Okay, let's move on. <coughs> Verse 13. And he sent forth two of his disciples and saith unto them, Go you into the city, and there you shall meet a man bearing a pitcher of water, follow him. I love scripture. Because it's so easy just to read these things and we go on to the next verse and we, we kind of miss the import of what's there. Jesus says to two of the disciples, I want you to go into the city. Yes, Jesus, what do you want us to do? Okay, you're going to see a man carrying a pitcher of water. I want you to follow him. Great, okay. And off they go, and they arrive in Jerusalem. And what do they see? Well, I'm guessing they probably saw hundreds of people all carrying pitchers of water. That's like me saying on Christmas Eve, I want you to go up to Asda and see, find somebody carrying a, a carton of milk or buying some milk. It's like everybody's going to be doing it, aren't they? They're getting ready for the, for the celebration, for the festival. I think it's quite interesting because, to me, this just spoke very clearly that actually they had to be going and looking with spiritual eyes. They go into the city, and I I am sure that there wasn't just one individual they saw with a pitcher of water. There could have been many. How did they know? Well, spiritual things are spiritually discerned. That's what Paul tells us. And I'm sure because they spent this time with Jesus... There was just that knowing, that assurance in their heart when they saw the right individual, they knew. And they followed after that individual. But it just underlies how important it is to be thinking spiritually when we go through life, when we make the decisions we make. We need to make spiritual decisions, not just do things in the flesh, do things naturally, because we could be led in the wrong direction, follow after the wrong person. And if we want to do the will of our Savior, well, we need to be in tune with his spirit. And I've got no doubt that when these disciples arrived, they were looking around and they see the man and they know exactly that this is the right individual. They know for sure in their hearts. 
And Jesus said to them, And wheresoever he shall go in, say ye to the good man of the house, there's the follow this man to the house, and then to the, to the man that owns the house, there to say, the master says, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? What faith? You know, they go up to a house of somebody who they don't know, and they boldly say, uh, we're going to come to your house later, and we're going to have our celebration in your room. Where, where is the room? Can you show us, please? Now, looking through some of the commentaries, a number of them suggest that at this time, typically, the guest chambers of the rooms would have been made up. They'd have been ready. They'd have been ready to celebrate the Passover for the families of the people that were coming. And so this wasn't an unusual situation in that sense, but to have a couple of strangers just turn up on your door and say, my master's coming and we're going to come into your house. You know, God is already doing work in a number of people for to bring all this situation together. You know, sometimes we don't act when God prompts us, but when we do act, wow, what an incredible witness, what an incredible testimony to God's providence and provision and the way that he foreordains things. Some of you may have remembered um, after Creation Fest, I was talking about Carl Beach, um, one of the uh, speakers, um, who was just talking about the fact that he'd been going out and then knocking on doors, and he went and knocked on this lady's door, because he really felt the Holy Spirit say, you know, go knock on that door. So he was out, and he did, and uh, the lady opened the door, and she just threw abuse at him. Um, he said unrepeatable things, she said. Um, so he walked away, and he got a little bit down the road, and he really felt the Holy Spirit say, go back to that house. And so he thought, really, Lord, is this you? But he really felt convicted, so he went back to that house. And once again, this whole load of abuse comes out from this lady. Um, and so he walks off and thinks, well, maybe I made a mistake, you know, and that wasn't of the Lord. And you know, anyway, A week or two later, he was back in the neighborhood, and he comes down the road, and he felt the Lord say, I want you to go and knock on that door. He's like, again, Really? But in obedience to God, he went and knocked on that door and the lady opened. And he said, oh, it's you. Please come in. And to cut a long story short, she brought him in and she explained to him how her life was in a real mess. And that day, she was contemplating killing herself. And the first knock on the door, she was just about to, to kill herself. And obviously that knock on the door stopped. And then she basically said, God, if that's you, let that man come back again. And then a few minutes later, he knocks on the door again. And then obviously, she kind of got over that particular moment and uh, just wanted to know about Jesus. And when he came back a couple of weeks later, she invited him and they sat down and he led it to the Lord. Just an incredible situation. You know, how many of us would have the courage to go and knock on someone's door once? You know, and then twice and three times. You know, this is the kind of thing, though, that the Lord will call us to take these steps of faith. If we trust him, are we prepared just to believe that he has arranged the circumstances ahead of time? Because that's exactly what was done here. Because verse 15 says, and he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. So the disciples have got to go into this situation believing that the Lord has gone before them. That the Lord really does know the end from the beginning. And that if he calls us to do something, it may seem absurd to us. But you know, if you have that assurance in your heart that you should do it, that, that voice of the Holy Spirit just bringing that conviction, 
But then step out in faith. Because God goes before us. Verse 16, and his disciples went forth and came into the city and found, as he said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. It's a simple verse just saying, it happened exactly as Jesus said it would. We should have that faith, shouldn't we? Just to remind us then of the Passover, back into Exodus chapter 12, and read there, your lamb, this lamb that they were to take, shall be without blemish. You know, they couldn't take a lamb that had a broken leg or some deformity. They weren't to worship God with that which cost them nothing. Same idea again, the idea of worship. That which we give to God as a sacrifice, as worship, has got to be the very best. Your lamb should be without blemish. A male of the first year. You should take it out from the sheep or from the goats and you should keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Okay, so this is what they were told. This this lamb they were to take. Okay, they're actually they were to take it on the tenth day of the month. It was to stay with them in their dwelling. It would almost become like a pet. But then on the fourteenth day, they keep it to the fourteenth day of the same month. And then we're told, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. So each family that have brought their lambs in were to kill this lamb without blemish in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it upon the two side posts and upon the upper door posts of the houses wherein they shall eat. Now there's a very interesting word here. There's no meaningless details in Scripture. We've said it so many times. Firstly, this lamb had to be, as he said, without blemish. It was a male. All of this speaking of Jesus. And by the way, these lambs, do you know where they'd have come from? The fields around Bethlehem. The fields around Bethlehem were the place where these lambs, these sacrificial lambs destined for the Passover, were born and raised. And just outside of Bethlehem, there was a particular tower. And that tower was a place where these lambs, when they were born, would be wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in this depression in the rock that was at the base of the tower that was known as the manger. And these lambs would be laid there so they couldn't thrash about and hurt themselves. Because these were lambs destined for the temple, the whole place was kept ceremonially clean. And I believe it's that very place that when Mary and Joseph can't find any other place to dwell, that they've just walked into town past this tower. And I think Joseph says, you know what, let's go back there. The whole story of this inn and the innkeeper. There was a, an innkeeper or someone that had a house. They knocked on the door, clearly. But the idea of the stable and the donkey and all those kind of things is something that tradition has given us. There's no mention of it in Scripture. But Micah does tell us that it was to this tower that the Messiah would come. He also tells us that it would be in Bethlehem. And you join those two things together and Micah gives us precise details. So this lamb these lambs that they were offering at sacrifice, they would have come from those fields around Bethlehem. Not for, the, not for the original Passover, but later on once they were in the lamb and at the time that Jesus was in Jerusalem. So, again, they were to keep this lamb up until the 14th day of the month. 
feast of Passover itself. And in the evening, and this is the word that's interesting, because typically they did celebrate the Passover in the evening. That's when they celebrated in Egypt. That's when Jesus was celebrating with his disciples in the evening. And yet, typically, the Jewish leadership would sacrifice their lambs the next day, according to our mindset. It was still the 14th in the Jewish calendar, but they would sacrifice the lambs the next day. Now, how does that work? Well, because this word, in, is actually in the Hebrew word, bayan, and it literally means between. The instruction here is that they shall kill it between the evenings. Actually, they're given a 24-hour window in which to offer up this sacrifice. Why is that important? Well, because when we look at, if you look at the dark blue section, the Thursday, Wednesday evening becomes the 14th. That is the time that Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples on the Feast of Passover. But that day carries through until 6 o'clock the next evening. And so the Jews are able to offer their sacrifices in the temple on what to our mind is the Thursday and what we would think is the next day. But to the Jews, it's still the 14th. It's still Passover. Because they've got this period, they've got to sacrifice the lamb between the evenings. They've got the 24-hour window. So Jesus not only could be with his disciples to celebrate the Passover... On the same day in the Jewish calendar, he could also become the Passover. Exactly as Paul says for us. Those are the seven feasts of Israel as given in Leviticus 23 and elsewhere in the Old Testament. And those first three are all fulfilled during this one week. Every one of those feasts point to Jesus. And those first three specifically were fulfilled in detail in this week. <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul says, uh, he, he gives a declaration of what the gospel is. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. This is the good news, the gospel. That Christ died for our sins. Notice what he says, according to the scriptures. When did Christ die for our sins? Christ died on the feast of Passover. According to the scriptures, he became the fulfillment of the Passover. And then he was buried. When did that take place? Well, that happens on the 15th. As it gets to the evening, Jesus is taken off the cross. and He's taken to this burial place this rich man's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea, willingly gives up his tomb. And he was buried and then he rose again the third day. When did Jesus rise from the dead? The third day. No trouble with the maths in any of this. Jesus was in the grave for three days, three nights, rising on the third day. And that third day happens to be the feast of first fruits. And Paul says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again according to the scriptures. All of this intertwined with the Old Testament, with the feasts of Israel, all written down over a thousand years before these events take place. And Jesus now coming onto the scene, preparing to fulfill these things in detail. 
God's control of history is incredible. Everything centered on this week. And in the evening he cometh with the twelve, and as they sat and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, one of you with eats with me shall betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and say unto him, one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? You see, they didn't know who who he could be. And I guess they recognized that they were all so sinful in the hearts when we know our own hearts, don't we? We've said before that if I could take my life, my heart, my mind, my thoughts and put them up on the screen and project them up here, you probably would never come back to this church again. But then if I could take your thoughts and your heart and project it on the screen, we probably wouldn't let you in. So, You see, we know what we're like. you know, And we're just so grateful for the grace of God. That doesn't mean we should stay where we are as Peter's wonderfully said earlier you know we, we, we how, how can those who have been raised again risen to new life in Christ stay in sin no no we, we won't be happy in sin but we do know the depths of our own beings we know what we're like and the disciples are, are then asking themselves could I do that would it be me but of course what they didn't realize that in the room with them was one individual who had already made this decision now of course Jesus knew and Judas now knows he's got a problem the cat is out of the bag so to speak and he's got to act fast because whilst the Pharisees are planning to do something after the festival period is over all of a sudden the plot has been discovered at any moment Jesus could declare that it's Judas he's going to betray me what would happen? well the rest of the disciples no doubt would jump on him, mob him so he doesn't have very long at all. So he knows he's got to slip away quickly and go to the chief priest and says, look, if you're going to do this, you have to do it tonight. Because otherwise you might not get another chance. And they don't want to do it because it's the feast of Passover. And he answered and said unto them, it is the one of the twelve that dippeth with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good were it for him, was it good were it for that man if he had never been born. A chilling statement indeed. And as they did eat, Jesus took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup when he had given thanks and he gave it to them and they drank all of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. I mean, they were celebrating the Passover. They were eating the the bread they were eating, and they were thinking about the Passover lamb, and they were drinking the cups, and, and thinking about all the things that they'd learned from the law about these cups. We'll talk about that in a moment. And Jesus says, effectively to them, guys, all of this is pointing to me. The bread you're eating, this unleavened bread without sin, It's my body. That's what it's speaking of. All the way down through history, it's always been about me. And then the cup, and Jesus says, this is speaking of my blood. This is going to be shed, but it's going to be the start of a new agreement, a new covenant. Not like the old covenant, not like the law, which you couldn't keep. This is going to be a new covenant. 
where it's all done for you. And as the disciples had gone on from this point and as the church started to grow, clearly they started to understand the import of everything that Jesus said this night. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, gives us a a further explanation of this and, and recounts he has this opportunity, seemingly when he's caught up to the third heaven, where the Lord explains these things to him. And when he's able to, he comes back and tries to do his best to put into words these things. The miracle that all of these things had been hidden in the feast of Israel the whole time, and now Jesus is revealing them to his disciples. Notice that we're told that his blood is shed for many, just for as many as received him. He gave power to become the sons of God. Of course, that blood covered all. We know from First John that he is the propitiation or the payment in full, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. The idea of limited atonement that comes under the view that many Calvinists will hold to doesn't stand up against Scripture. Jesus didn't just die for the few that would believe or the, however many would believe. He, he died for the sins of the whole world. And that means that nobody will go to hell on account of their sin. People will go to hell because they refuse to accept Jesus as the payment in full for that sin. John makes it clear that he's the propitiation for our sins and not only ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I I drink it new in the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean a huge amount to us because we don't understand the context. We'll explain in a moment. We're told that when they had sung a hymn, they went out unto the Mount of Olives. Now, this is a, a truly a great promise. That Jesus is promising that there will be a time that we will celebrate this celebration, effectively what was laid out in a model form in the Passover, and we will celebrate that with him in heaven. Jumping back to Exodus 6, we find that we have the four cups that typically the Jews would drink from during this Passover celebration. Okay, The text says, Wherefore say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, I will bring you out. That was the first one. First cup they would drink, it would be in remembrance they have been brought out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you of their bondage. That was the second cup they would drink. It was a celebration of what God had done for them. And I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. And I will take you to me for a people and I will be to you a God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God which brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The fourth cup is the cup of taking out. And that is the cup that Jesus did not drink from. They were ready for it. The disciples were expecting the, the normal, regular Passover celebration. But Jesus doesn't drink from that fourth cup. He kind of puts it to one side and says, no, no, we're going to drink that later. Because there's a time coming when Jesus will come and will take us out. And it will take us as a people for himself. And that is when we'll drink anew with him in his kingdom. And we'll get to drink that fourth cup, completing this 
declaration that he's brought us out from under the burden and the bondage of sin, that he's redeemed us. But it doesn't just stop there because he's going to come and take us. What a wonderful promise. Those four cups again. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. And finally, I will take out. And that was the one that wasn't drunk from at the Last Supper that Jesus points to, that we will drink with him in his Father's kingdom. And Jesus said unto them, All you shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. Somehow the disciples keep skipping over this bit about him rising from the dead. Because even after he's risen on the resurrection morning, there's that kind of like, well, I think maybe he said something about it, but and they seem to be so slow to take it all on. Jesus says, after I'm risen, I'll go before you into Galilee. But Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, yet will not I. Very bold statement of Peter's, thinking, you know, other people, Jesus, may let you down. I'll never let you down. You know. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this day, even in this night, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. But he spoke the more vehemently. If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Likewise also, they said all. They all said, Jesus will stand with you to the end. Of course, they didn't, we know. And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and uh, he said to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John, and began to be sore amazed, and to be uh, very heavy. And said unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, if there was any other way, the hour might pass from him. But you remember that this hour was what it had all been about. John 12 tells us that Jesus said, I've, now this is the hour. Throughout his ministry, Jesus said, a number of times, my hour has not yet come. But now, this week, this time, here, Gethsemane, the hour has come. He knows this hour can't pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take this, take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou will. And he cometh and finding them sleeping. And said unto Peter, sleepest thou? Could thou now watch one hour? And we must let Jesus down so often. And yet his grace never fails us. You know, in Luke's account, we're told that there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And he began agony. He prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is a condition that we know. And, of course, Luke being a physician, a doctor, uh, tells us of this. These great drops of blood. It's a condition known as hematidrosis. Uh, is when you are in extreme anguish or mental pressure. Not again because of the cross. That wasn't what Jesus was concerned about. I mean, that was one of the most brutal and horrific deaths you could possibly die. But that wasn't the problem for Jesus. It was because the cup of God's wrath was to be poured on him. That's the cup that he was speaking of. God's wrath for all of our sin, for every rape, for every murder, for every abortion, for every deceitful lie, for every 
hurtful comment. Everything that had been done through the history of mankind laid upon the perfect, sinless Son of God. Three times Jesus prays if there is any other way. And of course, there wasn't. This is why the only way to be saved is through the blood of Jesus Christ. There is salvation in no other name. You know, people can get offended and say that this is narrow-minded, this dogmatic. Why can't you be saved through Buddhism or through Islam or through Hinduism or through whatever other philosophy the world can come up with? Why can't that bring you to a right standing with God? Because it can't. Because none of those offer a remedy for sin. It's like going to a doctor and being offered a, a cure for some incurable disease. And the doctor says, there is a cure. And you get all upset and say, well, only one? But that's the ludicrous position that people in this world take. There's a cure for the greatest problem we have, and that problem is death. As we said before, that Jesus didn't come to solve the problem of hunger. Because that wasn't our greatest need. Jesus didn't come to solve the problem of poverty. He said, the poor will always be with you. And that wasn't our greatest need. And Jesus came to solve the problem of death. Death was our greatest need. I was speaking to a lady on the train recently whose father passed away and I believe he knew the Lord. And we were just talking, saying how hard it is to deal with death. We're not programmed for it. It was something God never intended for us. Death is a result of sin. But there's hope through Jesus. Because Jesus went through this, because there was no other way. Death no longer has any power over those that believe. And it was, of course, the separation from his father. When he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, up until this point, the Godhead had never been separated. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. But God the Father has to turn away as the sin of the world is put upon his son. Heartbreaking beyond anything we can imagine. He that knew no sin became sin for us. And you know, Hebrews tells us, Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. You have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. None of us have ever got to that point where resisting sin, we've been sweating drops of blood. When you get to that point, well, then you can talk to the Lord. But the Lord will never allow you to be tempted beyond that which you can bear. <clears throat> Text carries on. Watch you and pray, lest you enter into temptation. I could expound that far more, but we move on. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep. Again, for their eyes were heavy. And neither wist they what to answer. They didn't know what to say. They were so embarrassed of falling asleep again. And he came a third time and said unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. But then there's the disturbance. And Jesus said, It's enough. The hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise up. Let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. And no doubt they heard this great multitude, some 600 or so armed soldiers approaching. 
And immediately while he yet spoke, cometh Judas, one of the twelve, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And he that betrayed him had given them a token, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, the same is he. Take him and lead him away safely. I don't even think Judas really knew the consequence of his actions and what was going to happen here. As soon as he was calm, he goes straight away to him and said, Master, Master, and kissed him. How painful that must have been for Jesus. And they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of them that stood by drew a sword and smote a servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, we're not given the detail here, but we find out that it was actually Peter that did this. Now, Mark is recording the words of Peter. Peter kind of not wanting his name to be put against this. Why? Because probably Mark was one of the first Gospels written. Probably the first. As Mark is taking these things down from Peter and writing them. And there are still people alive that, if they knew that Peter had done this, they might go after Peter. So Peter doesn't want his name put to this. So, I, uh, somebody did it. Shh, don't know what to say. Why so many soldiers? Why does Peter just recklessly just charge in? Well, it's because of the promises that have been given them. Back in Luke, chapter 1, verse 68 to verse 73, this declaration, this song of praise, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. This is the the promise of the Messiah, what he was going to do, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. This was their expectation, that the Messiah was going to come and deliver them completely. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. Luke chapter 1. As Gabriel speaks to Mary, verse 31, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and shalt bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, ruling in Jerusalem. And the disciples can see the temple from where they were, from the Gethsemane, just just down a little bit from the, the temple mount. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And Peter, believing his promises, charges in. Now we're going to do it. Even in Acts, after the resurrection, after all of these things, the disciples come to Jesus. This is when they were there, for they were come together. They asked him, saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to do it now? And he said unto them, it is not for you to know the times of the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. It's not to say it won't happen, but it's not yet. You see, the Jewish expectation was clear. The disciples were expecting a national deliverer. And the Jews were fearing a political insurrection against Rome. They'd said as much themselves. The Jewish leaders wanted to maintain the status quo. They figured that the state they were in was better than having all rights taken away from them. Peter bolstered remember because whole the first when they come to him they say whom seek ye he said i am it's the name of god and they all fell over backwards and peter no doubt thinking this is great look we've got superpower on our side 
So he sets about thinking he's going to take them one by one. But Jesus diffuses the tension. He takes the, his ear, picks his ear up off the floor, <laughs> puts it back on. The servant of the high priest, Malchus was his name. You see, Jesus had already fought the real battle that night and was determined to do his father's will. He was still being obedient to that end. What lessons are there for us in this world? We're not fighting for a political kingdom. So sad that the church throughout so much of its history has not understood this. See, we will not build the kingdom now. It's kind of faded a bit. For the last 20, 30 years, there's been so much about building the kingdom. So many preachers and evangelists saying that Jesus is going to build the kingdom, or we're going to build the kingdom for Jesus, and then he'll return. I mean, oh, where they get this stuff? It's not in the Bible. The Roman Catholic Church became what it is for this pursuit of political authority. It was never the mandate for the church. You see, in fighting social battles, which so many try to do, will cause those around to lose their ears. Just as Peter's attempt. You know, it, it's great and good if you want to get involved in various charitable causes. I'm not dissuading you from doing that. But understand that is not the battle. The battle is the one we fight against sin, the world, and the devil. It's all that which is in the spiritual realm, not in the physical. True freedom is declared at the cross. And the problem we have is that so often we try to bypass the cross. You see, we must not and cannot circumnavigate the cross. You see, if Jesus had gone on, as Peter and the others seemingly wanted at that moment, and claimed the kingdom and defeated Rome, he'd have been one of the only one in eternity, the only man that none others could have followed. But by going to the cross, he made a way for all of us. And all those political causes and so on, they are not the real battle. Jesus answered and said unto them, Are you come out against me as a thief with swords and with staves to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you took me not, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. And they all forsook him and fled. And there followed him a certain young man having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young man laid hold on him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. This is the only gospel that records this. And this is why some people think this could have been John Mark himself making this reference. No doubt he was following around. He'd have seen the known of the disciples. May well have been with him. This quite probably could have been him. And they led Jesus away to the high priest. And with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. And Peter followed him afar off, even into the palace of the high priest. And he sat with the servers and warmed himself at the fire. And the chief priests and all the councils sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death and found none. For many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. And there arose certain and bear false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another one, another made without hands. Of course, misquoting what Jesus has said and certainly the intent. But neither so did their witness agree together. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, 
Artists thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But he held his peace and answered nothing. And again the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now, before we get to Jesus' answer, there's six illegal trials that take place here. We have before Annas, and then Caiaphas, and then Sanhedrin, then the Jewish ones, and then Pilate, Herod, and then back to Pilate. None of those things should have taken place. This was what we refer to as a kangaroo court. Again, those six trials, it was illegal to carry weapons on a feast day, and yet they come out to him fully armed. It was illegal to bind the accused before condemnation, and yet they do that. It was illegal for judges to participate in the arrest of the accused, and that the Jewish leaders did that. No trial was to be conducted at night, and yet they did that. Any verdict other than acquittal could not be pronounced the same day, and yet, of course, they did that. And the high priest was not allowed to rent his robes either, which he did. Everything about this was wrong. But they weren't that bothered about the truth, were they? And Jesus said, I am. Yes, I am the Son of the Blessed, the Son of the Most High. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest rent his clothes and said, What need we any further witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy, what think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. What Judas thought at that point? This has gone far further than I think he intended it to go. But isn't that what sin does? It takes us further than we want to go. It costs us more than we want to pay and keeps us longer than we want to stay. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to buffer him and to say unto him, Prophesy! And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. And as Peter was beneath in the palace, there cometh one of the maids of the high priest. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she said, she looked upon him and said, And thou also, sorry, thou also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied, saying, I know not, neither I understand what thou sayest. And he went out into the porch and the cock crew. And a maid saw him again and began to say, to them that stood by, this is one of them. And he denied it. And a little after they that stood, a little after they that stood by said again to Peter, Surely thou art one of them, for thou art a Galilean. And thy speech agreeeth there too. You, I can tell you from your, from your accent, you're one of them. But he began to curse and to swear, saying, I know not this man of whom you speak. And the second time, the cock crew. And Peter called to mind the words that Jesus said unto him, Before the cock crowed twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. And when he thought thereupon, he wept. Peter had, just a few hours before, tried to take on 600 plus armed soldiers. Now he's intimidated by a girl in the courtyard. You know, in our flesh dwells no good thing that's what paul tells us in the book of romans yeah to will is there yeah but to perform that which is good we don't find so what about the transformation that we see well in philippians four thirteen, paul will later say i can do all things through christ and if we compare john eighteen twenty seven and acts 4 6 and 14 you see a wonderful contrast. I'll let you do that yourselves. Let's bow our hearts and just thank the Lord for this time together. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that these things were not just recorded for people at that time. They're recorded for us. 
right now. Lord, your word says, upon whom the ends of the world have come. Lord, we're living in the days we believe when we will see your return. But Lord, even if not, Lord, these things are so applicable to us right now. Lord, help us to understand how they should apply to us. Lord, help us to see, Lord, through these things. Lord, echoes of our own lives and challenges as we walk before you. Father, help us not to be so rash to jump into things and yet so slow to truly commit. Father, impress the the lessons that you've been teaching us this morning on our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.